Welcome to the La Liga Talks podcast, where we bring you closer to the people who live and breathe the best league in the world. Today, we speak to Spanish football expert and journalist Graham Hunter in a captivating interview. From breaking a story with Jean-Marc Bosman that changed the course of football as you know it, to behind the scenes of Spain's World Cup triumph in South Africa. You don't want to miss it. But before that, let's jump into the latest news of La Liga. Sikarikov! And there's the opener! Ten minutes into the second half! Iñaki Williams, the pass is made in behind now. He cuts inside. It's Iñaki Williams! And there's the equaliser! So it's another brilliant weekend of La Liga football, culminating with a fantastic game between the prize package Girona FC and Athletic Club in our Monday night action. Although Girona draw does now mean we have a new leader at the summit, but let's talk about Real Madrid later. What did you make of Girona last night, guys? Wow, what a partidazo we saw Monday night at Montilivi. The Lions held the leaders to a draw in a game that had chances here, there and everywhere. But neither team were able to grab the three points. A fantastic game, as Carla said, between Girona, who were current league leaders at the start of match day 14, they came up against an athletic club side who've been having a, a, a good season. Um, and yeah, it was, a, it was a very entertaining game. Girona dominated possession. As per usual, we're becoming, we're becoming used to that. And an athletic club created chances. I wouldn't say on the break. There, there was some really nice build-up play from athletic club. Um, both teams created lots of chances. 13 shots each, if, if I remember rightly. that was Exactly, 13 shots each and... And Athletic Club were actually more were more accurate with their attempts on goal, having six on target compared to Girona's two. I wouldn't say that meant Athletic Club were in the ascendancy. Girona attacked a lot, especially down that left-hand side. Um, and the first half was, was super entertaining, but the game went up a level in the second half, thanks to a Victor Shigankov goal in the 55th minute, after some beautiful play on the left from Savinho. And then 12 minutes later... Inaki Williams got the equaliser. The main man stood up and when it was important for, for Athletic Club. Equalised with his sixth goal of the season and obviously he's one of Athletic Club's standout players. But who else stood out on a brilliant night, Carla? One to not forget is Nico Williams, Inaki's brother, who was MVP of the match. He was a constant threat on that left wing. He drove Arnau Martinez absolutely crazy, forcing Michel into a tactical change on that right wing for Girona. Uh, Nico has been impressive all season, both for club and country, so it's really no surprise that he was one of the standout players in the game. Another standout performer on, on the Girona left side was was that guy Savino, water player, 19 years of age. He's only signed for Girona in the summer, and he's been one of the standout players in the league this year, and some of the things he can do on that left wing is, is really incredible. He's always taken on his man in 1v1s, He's creating space, he's whipping balls into the box and he ended up getting the assist for the Shigankov goal. So, yeah, he was he was really impressive. But they did draw, Oli, right? They, did, they didn't manage to get that win that could have took on top of the table. Do you think they'll be too disappointed with that? To be honest, I think they showed some really good sides to their game and, yeah, this Girona team... This is only the start of the story for the season. They'll be there, thereabouts, throughout the whole year. So, look, keep an eye on this team. Yeah, it was far from a disastrous draw for this brilliant Micho-led Girona side. And let's not forget, 
four of the last five teams to collect at least 35 points at this stage of the season. The points total the Catalans are currently on have gone on to win the La Liga title. What a strike! And Unai Lopez just pouncing on the loose ball. Thought, why not? Have a go. As Hermoso plays the ball in, and Griezmann finds the back of the net. The man on fire. The man looking to make history. It was also an action-packed La Liga Saturday, maybe more so for Oli than anyone else. Um, there was three games in Madrid on the same day. What did you get up to, Oli? It certainly was a, a hectic day. I attended all three games with my my colleague Anais. We were doing a concept for social media where we had to go to each game and we were using different forms of public transport and and loads of stuff like this. It was it was incredible though. It was such a cool experience to to go to multiple different games and, and it really just showed how huge football is in Madrid and the fact that there was three games in the same city in one day was was incredible. First game you got to go to was uh, Vallecas. Incredible atmosphere, especially as they were hosting Barcelona. Yeah, Barcelona were in town, which always attracts a certain type of atmosphere, and it really was special in in Vallecas. And um, obviously, Rayacana went one 0 up in the first half. An incredible goal by Unai Lopez. And yeah, Vallecano have been super impressive this season so far. Yeah, they, they held Barcelona and, and it's the theme that's appearing here, isn't there? They're actually a very stubborn outfit. It's not an easy place to go, the Barracas, at the moment. Um, maybe a slightly more pragmatic Barca that we're used to seeing at the moment. Um, but yeah, what did you what did you make of the entire game there? Was it, was it a good game to watch, at least? It was It was interesting. It started off with, with Rayo pressing high and creating some chances. And then once they got the goal, inevitably they sat back a bit and... Barcelona had a lot of possession in the second half. And then in the 82nd minute, Balde down the left, whipped it in towards Lewandowski. Leun tried to interject, but diverted it into his own goal. And that was how it ended, one all. And after that, it was there was no hanging around. It was straight off <laughs> to Getafe um, for Getafe Almeria. First time I've been in the Coliseum. We had to use bus, train and metro to get there. And it was... It was another entertaining game, especially the first half. Um, Almeria went 1-0 one, one up. Getafe got two goals. And yeah, it was my first time in the Coliseum and it was really impressive. It's a cool stadium. Bordalas really has Getafe playing the way he wants. And they're sitting eighth in the league right now. Um, looking better and better every week. And to be honest, that first half of football was one of the best first halves of the weekend. It was like a brilliant comeback from his side. It certainly was, and there was no goals in the second half, and we had to jet off very quickly to to Atleti. We got a taxi straight from the Coliseum to the Metropolitano, and we witnessed another win for Atletico Madrid. You were in the stadium for that one, Carlo, I believe, and what did you make of the game, a big Atleti supporter? It was more of a lazy Saturday for me. I watched it from the stands while Oli was pitch-side. But uh, as Luke said, I am a big Atleti fan and I'm at most games. So for me, it was another incredible win. Maybe a bit more fought out than the ones we've been seeing lately. It was just a 1-0. It was a hard win as well. Simeone had the fans edging the team on towards the end. Mallorca had their chances. But Griezmann, obviously the standout player once again, scored the winning goal. 
and Aledi on an 18-game home win streak right now. So, I mean, they're, they're really pushing for the title. They have that game in hand that they have to play on the 23rd of December against Sevilla at home, which won't be easy. But right now, I think what they have to do is just kind of keep pushing and make sure that when the time comes to play that game, that they're still in a, in a decent position in the title race. And what a beautiful run that was. From one end of the pitch to the other, one pass, one touch. That was all Morales. It's Sadiq. Oh! What a way to score his first goal of the season. He's been waiting for months. His teammates can't believe it. Still Rodrigo, and there's the second goal. Once again, as with the first goal, Bellingham makes the run, and Rodrigo runs into the space and beats Ledesma. He's given it to Bellingham, and Bellingham has scored his 11th league goal of the season, his 14th in all competitions. He just goes on and on and on. Well, I hope you recovered from that frantic Saturday, Ollie. What a day, and some brilliant content made there. Guys, as a reminder, make sure you stay tuned to La Liga's socials, as there's always exciting things happening there. But we also must speak about Sunday, a day of individual brilliance, an Umar Sadiq pile driver that led Real Sociedad to victory. But there's one thing that really stood out, wasn't there? 36-year-old Jose Luis Morales with a brilliant hat-trick. Yeah, Jose Luis Morales. What a La Liga legend, for those of you who don't know anyway. 10 years at Levante, now he's playing at Villarreal, and I think he could really be the player that Marcelino needs to get this Villarreal back up and running. He scored a hat-trick over the weekend. He's one to score quick hat-tricks. We saw him score one in just 12 minutes last year in Europe. On Sunday, he scored his hat-trick in just 23 minutes. Uh, I can't choose my favourite goal. What about you guys? Do you prefer any? For me, the standout goal has to be the second goal. What I mean, I mean, it's one of the goals of the season for sure. To describe it, it's basically cleared by Foyth and Morales is on the halfway line and he controls it, flicks it over his head and just runs straight for the keeper and is so calm to finish it. Dinks it with his left foot over the keeper. If you haven't seen it, like you have to check it out. It's an absolute masterpiece of a goal. Ronaldo-esque, you could say. R9, yeah. It, it, it reminded me a bit of R9. Um, so yeah, incredible stuff from Morales. It was a, a really impressive performance, of course, to score a hat-trick, 36 years of age. You wouldn't know it by looking at him. Yes, we really we really hope the best for Morales for more of these types of performances. It was absolute brilliant spectacle. Um, but we must mention Rodrigo again for Real Madrid, and a player we spoke about in the last episode, and he was involved in another bunch of goals, wasn't he? As we mentioned last episode, he was finding his feet, and he's proven that uh, Vinicius is out injured, and Rodrigo stepped up on the left wing. Yeah, another fantastic performance from Rodrigo. And yeah, he's playing on that left wing and he's just cutting in and it seems unstoppable. Both goals he cut in from the left. Um, the, the first one, he, he took on three men, cut inside and finished. And the second one was similar enough, just completely unstoppable. And he also assisted Bellingham's goal, of course, which was in similar fashion. Off the left, cuts inside gives it to Bellingham, and what a finish from Bellingham. So for those of you who know me, I'm going to take any opportunity to speak about this fantastic Englishman who's already becoming a legend at his side. That's 14 goals in 15 games. 
with Cristiano Ronaldo and Di Stefano only managing 13, that's the sort of level we're speaking about, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's absurd how good this guy is. I mean, we knew he was a, a box-to-box midfielder, but his finishing ability is just second to none this season. And that goal at the weekend on his weaker left foot, powerful shot under the goalkeeper, world-class. Rodrigo, Vinny and Bellingham, that front line is starting to take serious shape. And the team, who are now top of the league, have also created the most chances so far this season. So, we guess it's going to be Bellingham and Rodrigo's job to keep Real Madrid scoring and shining in Vini's absence and also keep them top of La Liga in the coming match days. On this week's episode of La Liga Talks, we have a guest who is synonymous with Spanish football. And for those of you familiar with La Liga TV, you may have seen him on your screens where he offers brilliant insight. Mr. Graham Hunter. It's absolutely fantastic to have Graham on the show. Um, someone who is an absolute expert in his field and has such a vast knowledge on Spanish football. So it's going to be really interesting to hear what he has to say. What a guy. Luke and I actually got to meet him back in September. All I can say is that we nearly missed our train just because we were speaking to him for so long. And he gave us so much knowledge, so much insight to Spanish football, things that we'd never even heard about. And wow, guys, you're going to love this interview. So let's hear about the world of football and Graham's impact on it. Graham, it's a privilege and a pleasure to have you on La Liga Talks today. Thank you so much for giving us the time. Listeners, Graham is a wonderful human being, a great journalist, great book writer, and a pundit, just to name a few of the things. Graham, thank you so much for being here today. Look, it's, it's, it's not a privilege for, for you. It's definitely a privilege for me. You know that um, I passionately love La Liga. Um, it's the principal, if not the only, but it's the principal reason I live in Spain and I have done for 21 years. And my eagerness to chat to you about um, the things that brought me here, the stories that have marked my path here, means that I'm doing this while I'm just coming out of the other edge of suffering from COVID, which is why I haven't been able to put my lenses in today. And I know you and your producer said to me, oh, that's just part of your image, but it, I really can see these are um, seeing glasses as well. So the Ray Charles look is because uh, my eyes are all red and swollen and horrible, but it's a pleasure to talk football with you again. Thank you so much, Graham. And I really appreciate you putting the time here when you're, you're suffering from COVID. That can't be easy. Um, so even more appreciation there. Of course, you've got some amazing stories within the world of football, but the roles are totally reversed today as I'm going to be the one interviewing you and understanding something about your stories. Now, having had the pleasure to speak to you in the past, it's quite clear your, your love for the Spanish game. Um, so I'd like to start off with you telling me a little bit of, about what drove you into this game. Obviously, you're the, you're the author of one of my all-time favourite footballing stories, Barca, the making of the world's greatest team. And I would suggest any fan of football goes to read that one. Could you tell me not only what inspired you to write that book, but what's inspired you to do the, all the, the roles and the jobs you have done for your, your brilliant career? Look, 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 the short and simple thing, if it, maybe there are maybe there are uh, younger people out there who are thinking, I'd like a career in football journalism, I'd like to live in Spain. My first message is do it. Um, when I was growing up, 
something inside me. I always, I, I never saw something I wanted to copy it. I, I just always knew I wanted to be a journalist. I don't know where that came from, but I always did. So I would sit at home um, as a youngster, really quite young, with a typewriter that my, my dad had brought back from his office and I'd type out live match reports while listening to Radio Scotland when Aberdeen were playing midweek. And um, in 1982, I decided that it was imperative that my best friend Graham Runcie and I followed Scotland for a month. Think of that, a month at the World Cup in 1982. Scotland were based in Andalusia, Alex Ferguson, then the Aberdeen manager, soon to dominate football with Manchester United, was next door neighbour to my best friend and therefore he kind of chaperoned us through the World Cup, getting us tickets, taking us out on the lash too, I have to say. <laughs> and that first night in Puerto Banus, sitting with Alec Ferguson and eight or nine coaching colleagues from the, the Scottish game, we heard stories that certainly made me go, wow, this football world is, is pretty groovy. Some <laughs> stories I can't repeat, even, even yet, 40 years later. And I decided there and then that football journalism was a must for me. And eventually in the, in the mid-90s, instead of doing football journalism as a part-time thing, I, I chucked my job in. I'd been at the World Cup in the States in 94, again for a month, nicking around. In those days, you didn't need to have a passport to fly internally in the States, and you could buy an interrail for the air. So you bought a month's ticket of flights, and every flight thereafter within the States was free. So my wife, my brother, and I just nicked around the States for month again and I came back and I looked at the Scottish press and I'd saved the newspapers in the house that I was subscribed to. I read their coverage of the World Cup and feel free to poke fun at me but I said I can do better than that that's rubbish. <laughs> so on the spot I, I chucked my job in and I broke a story as a freelance that helped me very much indeed and I got a job the Daily Mail was opening in Scotland I got a job there and Gradually, um, it, it was clear that, you know, full-time journalism was for me and, and I, I got some decent stories. And that propelled me onwards to the fact that very quickly after I chucked my old job in, I became chief football writer for the Daily Mail in London. And I loved the Premier League at that stage, Luke. It was jam-packed full of the first wave of continental stars moving over. So... We, we were genuinely seeing something new and because the internet was a far, far less interesting, known tool, when Azola or Gianluca Vialli or Hula or Schmeichel or Benny Carboni, Dennis Bergkamp arrived, Patrick Vieira, I was reporting on them and, and interviewing them and there was that first flush of, of thrill, of learning about them and the texture of the Premier League felt very different. It felt... Or, a sudden blend of all the old Anglo-Saxon things, but with an influx of money, it was quite well organised. And suddenly there were there were like little touches of, of gold or silver with these continental players who'd come across sometimes, even South American players. And I, I loved it. But we reached a stage where um, you, you couldn't get access to training grounds, you couldn't watch training. Although I was still getting interviews, it, it felt like interviews were grace and favour. But in my coverage, in my work at the Mail, I'd been sent time and time again to cover the best continental stories. And in 2001, I decided irrevocably, the football is better in Spain. The football is more attractive to me. 
it's coached, it's developed, it's played in a way that I want to understand better. I want to teach myself. I want to go over where the training grounds are still open. You can watch training, you can learn, you can become a better journalist. Access is, is better, it's easier. And I, I didn't have more than a smattering of Spanish, but I wanted to learn. Look, I really, I wanted to test myself too. I wanted to be out of a comfort zone. And I came to Spain with no plan, no money, no job, no contacts. So here I am, not quite, but nearly a quarter of a century, century later. And the, the, the reason for that is that Spanish football is exactly what I thought it was from a distance. It's thrilling. It's better coached. It's better strategically. It, it's put a, it puts a, a far greater emphasis on how to develop youth academy talents. And it plays a brand of football that I adore. So that, that's the reason, those are the reasons that I'm here speaking to you today. There's another story I would love you to tell us, Graham, about the Bosman transfer. I, I, again, I was absolutely fascinated with this one. Um, and I'd love for you to share to our listeners, if that's okay. Um, tell me a little bit about what the Bosman transfer is, first of all, and, and what your involvement was in that was. I, I think most of viewers or listeners now begin to think of them as freedom of contract, that it's less regular that they're called Bosman deals, but they are Bosman deals because Jean-Marc Bosman was um, a footballer who in the middle 90s wanted to move from one Belgian club to another. And in those days, the contract system didn't allow freedom of movement. So it, it really was barbaric if you think back on it now, where footballers at the end of their contract are guaranteed that they can move for free. And if they're a good footballer, any level of whatever you discover, describe as good, they'll earn much more money personally if they move for free. The club loses um, an asset without having recompense. But it's fair. You can you can do that in any walk of life, any profession. Anybody who's listening yeah. will be working in the, in an environment where they if they say, well, my contract's coming to an end or I'm going to give you notice and I can leave. Footballers couldn't do that. It was outrageous. And one guy, Jean-Marc Bosman, decided, I've been treated so unfairly, I'm going to take my, these clubs to, to court. And he did so. He used the, the European Union's uh, Court of Justice. He hired a lawyer called uh, Dupont. And it took quite some considerable time. And he was an outcast. He was a pariah. And initially, the unions around Europe didn't really care or support him and he really was on his own and I think the journalism in the ensuing I don't know how many years 27 28 years has has been tarnished a little bit by some of our industry's actions and behaviors but in those days this was good journalism where I could phone my editor and I, I could say look I've had a briefing from somebody who knows the case this man's personal situation is desperate it's completely unfair what's happened to him there's a tale there which will make his dry legal um, battle into a very moving human story. And my editor went, you're on a plane tomorrow morning at seven o'clock. I'm at Brussels airport phoning Jean-Marc Bosman in his home and saying, listen, I'm Graham Hunt in, in Luke, let me assure you, very pigeon French. So we find <laughs> out that this guy is actually both reasonably tolerant but shrewd negotiator. He just, he just says, nope. No, you can't, you can't come and speak to me. And I'm like, listen, boss, I really want to highlight your case. 
We have a high circulation. I think that you're arguing for something that's not only just, but it's obvious. And I know you've suffered. And there's a pause and he says, how much money have you got on you? I said, well, I've got maybe about 35 quid. He said, right, I'll take it. Jump on the train to Liège and I'll come pick you up. So I thought, that's weird because he's had to sell everything. And it turned out that once I reached Liège, he, he arrived in a big black BMW. And I was like, well, how did you manage this? And I'm piecing together my French still. And he said, well, finally, um, the Players Union in England, after months and months of just ignoring me, did send me some money. So I've hired this BMW. I thought, that is such a footballer priority. They're only getting my flat back or my furniture. Anyway, at any rate, we go up these long winding stairs into his parents' flat. Um, they have a big Doberman pincher. He tries to attack me as I'm coming in. But I didn't know what was in store. I didn't know whether I had the silver tongue to persuade Bosman to cooperate when I would turn up and he'd take my only money. And, and in those days, you know, you, you, you didn't easily um, access money abroad. There'd been no preparation. I'd been given no travelling cash, no traveller's checks. So it was a bit of a hairy situation. And um, I think I'd maybe told him a fib and maybe kept a fiver so that I could travel um, back to Brussels. But when we arrived there, he was like, all right, you know, you've paid up. So 35 quid was a big deal to him, which is absolutely crazy. And and Absolutely. in his parents' place, it was a modest place, and they were they were two relatively oldish parents, kind of fussing over him, and it was a shock scenario for this guy who was really in the eye of the hurricane of world football and was about to be still more. And in the middle of this tale, where I'm sitting with a tape recorder, prompting him every six or seven minutes, and with my next question in France, because I can discern the majority of what he's saying. And I'm recording it because it's, I'm going to take it to a translator in the European Parliament later that day to get her to, to translate every word literally. And um, at a certain point, the phone rings and rings and rings. And it's a bit of a pain in the arse because it's not a TV interview, but it's, it's distracting. And it stops. And then within seconds, it rings and rings and rings and rings again. And eventually his mum comes through and says, Jean-Jean, um, the interim verdict is in in the Court of Justice, you've won. It's the interim verdict, there'll be a fuller verdict in time, but you've won. And the phone's ringing off the hook because every news agency in the world, like Keep, France Football, Kicker, as well as Agence France Press and all the big agencies want to speak to you now. And he just goes, it was a surprising moment, but he just goes, no, tell them I'm not speaking to anybody. This guy's paid me until he and I are finished. I'm not speaking to anybody. And even then, I'll take a couple of hours so that he can get on with his story. It was, to me, it was unbelievable to witness because it would have been a very natural thing to go, I'm vindicated, I'm one, the world wants to hear my story now, let's go and speak to everybody right away, see you fella, bye. But he, he didn't, so in the end, I, I beat it off. The, 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 the dog leaps at me and my computer jumps out of his bag and falls down the stairs and off I go to print my story. So I promised our listeners we would bring in some of the golden age of Spanish football. It's something we all love being Spanish football fans. And what better place to talk about than the, the World Cup winning team of uh, 2010. Could you tell me a little bit about 
your involvement in that, Graham. I know you have some, some fantastic anecdotes. So if you're happy, could you talk to me just a little bit about that? Well, it, it was there was a proud uh, time because, you know, I was passionate about La Liga when I moved to Spain. Um, by 2010, I'd been attached to the Spanish national team in 2008 when they won the European Championships. And look, people will have forgotten that that Spanish team populated largely with footballers from La Liga, occasionally with some who'd travelled to the Premier League, was booed out of the country in 2008. The fans were disgusted with the form, um, even though they, they hadn't lost for nearly two years. Um, fans in Spain in the last friendlies, which took place for 2008, were, for whatever reason, were disgusted. Raul had been dropped. And it was a very, very antagonistic situation. And in 2008, in fact, only yesterday, I was interviewing Sergio Ramos, going back to that, where he was right back, if you remember, in that team led by Luis Aragonés. They win it and they win it in massive style. So by 2010, there's a different anticipation. There's an idea that Spain need to be more than just um, gutsy quarterfinalists. And then they lose the first game. Now I'm there as their television producer. It means that um, I fly with the team. I, I live in the same hotel as them. We, Myself and my cameraman were attached to them. Um, for every day of the seven and a half or eight weeks. And there are too many things to tell. So perming uh, gently, remember, Anders Iniesta has been at or around his peak, yet in the year before the World Cup, he suffered from the injury that he exacerbated while winning the Champions League in Rome. He played when he was not even 60% fit. His thigh muscle and related muscular injuries kept dragging him down. He subsequently related in his own film that he was so depressed that he didn't just move in. Here's a theme look. Anders Iniesta didn't just move in with his parents again. He was so lost, so sad, so depressed. He was beginning to age 26, 27. He was beginning to sleep in his parents' bed with them because he was so adrift. Now that irrespective of being a, a wonderful footballer, that's a man whose whose life is the gears have slipped and his his grasp on his identity and his self-worth has gone. And in that rush to be fit, the first game in Switzerland, Lichtensteiner, who, who probably became more famous playing at Juventus subsequently, slides right through Iniesta. Iniesta's only just reached the World Cup in form. Spain lose, it's a ridiculous goal they lose to, it's in Durban and you kind of write off the idea, or mentally you write off the idea that they might be back in Durban for the semi-final and Iniesta's injured and they go to Potchefstroom near south, near Johannesburg whereby they've built an airstrip, they've built an airstrip so that the Spain plane can land there so they don't have to go in the dangerous roads between Johannesburg and Potchefstroom but for whatever reason they then kind of abandon that and travel by bus. The journalist's bus behind the team bus on that long stretch of road from Joburg to Putchestrum. Robbers were, were quite prone to dropping big breeze blocks down on cars and then robbing them. Indeed, my landlady's brother had been robbed and killed the year before that way. And 
well, it wasn't the Spain bus that, that suffered, it was the Spain media bus, whereby hooligans in South Africa dropped this breeze block down um, on top of the bus and attempted to, to rob it. And in storms just before the World Cup, the training pitch, which had been specially prepared at Northwest University, was washed away, completely washed away. I'm trying to paint a picture whereby these heroes of yours and mine, um, Chabi Iniesta and Sergio Ramos and Ica Casillas and David Villa, Fernando Torres had driven, if you remember, during the volcano ash clouds that closed down the airspace in order to get treatment for an injury that he sustained for Liverpool in the Europa League against Benfica. He'd driven from Liverpool to Barcelona to attend a clinic with Dr. Cugat in order to try to be a fit for the World Cup. There was such a jigsaw of things going on. And after that first game, I remember a couple of quite famous media personalities in the UK being across the flash zone as I interviewed a Spain player, kind of rudely gesturing like that and waving goodbye to me as in, you're going home and Spain are going home, tough luck. And all right, you take that on the chin at the time and hope that they're wrong, but you don't know that Spain are about to become the first team ever to lose the well, first game and then You'd have had no idea that Cup. all these things were happening in the background. You would, you'd have had no idea. Most of them I, I, I knew about. Uh, most of them, most of the media knew about because when you're at a World Cup and you're based with the team and they have one home base rather than jumping around a massive continent uh, like in... Well... It helped that they come, they came back to HQ all the time, and therefore stories circulated. They had a look. They had a crisis meeting after the first match, whereby Dabosky was being heavily criticised for using both Chabi Alonso and Sergio Busquets in midfield, with Iniesta effectively as a as a winger, and the idea was, and it was very hostile towards young Busquets. The press were like, get this guy out. And it was just a ridiculous overreaction. But Del Bosque held a council of war and select captains, including Marchena and Pepe Reina and Casillas and Fernando Vieira, the director of all. It was a council of war. Are we doing the wrong thing? Have, have I lost any of you, Del Bosque would ask you? Do you believe, do you all believe? And the resounding answer was, the, the media are wrong. You are right. We're happy. We're, we're going to get through this group. And they do, and, and on and on it goes. There are so many stories that maybe I'll focus on. You know, we, we get to the final. Look look at how I used a pronoun improperly there. We get to the final because I feel like I'm one of them and I'm so desperate oh, them to win. And the, the FIFA people don't handle it particularly well and they say, oh, you can watch it from the, from the tribune and your cameraman can watch it from a cafe. So I... Uh, I, I go into full guerrilla mode and say, no, no, that, that's not happening. And we negotiate eventually a place on the pitch, my cameraman and I, where to the right of Dabowski's um, uh, dugout, um, such that when Sesk and Fernando Torres are initially warming up, because they were one of the, the three subs, including Navas, I could have reached out easily without moving and touched them. That's how close we were. So the, the first thing they talk about is when ex-Real Madrid player Arjun Robin goes screaming through one-on-one -on -one with Casillas and shoots on goal, shoots yeah. to Casillas' right. Casillas has dived left. And somehow he could get, the captain of Spain gets his big toe on the ball. And I've never in my life, before or since, 
seen a save like that. And look, I'm not joking, I'm, I'm here, still alive, 13 years later, but I literally thought my heart was going to stop. There and then, like literally the stress, the tension. It was unusual for me, it was not unheard of, but to watch a game from the pitch. And Spain win, they score. And I'd been told previously by the head of FIFA Films, your job is to talk your way into the dressing room so that if Spain win, you can film in there. So the previous Saturday, I'd met the head of the, the president of the Spanish FA. Um, I bought him a couple of beers. I'd talked about Spanish and Scottish football because he was a man who'd played in the first Spain team ever to win at Hamden in the mid-70s. And I'd said at the end of a really amiable 50 minutes for two or three beers and stories of his daring do for Spain against Scotland. President, I'd like to be in the dressing room um, tomorrow if... if if we win, he went, okay, uh, for a FIFA TV producer, we can do that. He said, I'll have to ask Fernando Hierro, come to breakfast tomorrow and, and we'll talk about it. And Fernando Hierro said, no, it's a private thing for the players. And the president went, well, look, I've kind of given this guy my word. We'll put it to the players. We'll put it to the, the, the leading players, the, the captaincy team. And they said, yes, it's fine. So by Sunday morning, I know that if Spain win, I'm in the dressing room with uh, with uh, Miami, my, my cameraman, um, Adam Bullfinch. And, and Spain win and we do get in and we film and, and it's the most extraordinary thing in that I've been in amateur teams, pub teams that celebrated, you know, an amateur Sunday morning semi-sober win on played on red blaze, played on concrete more than the Spain players were celebrating. Initially, it was fun because Placido Domingo was singing. Um, Rafa Nadal had his scarf wrapped around his head and he had two Spain flags on his cheekbones. And he was weeping so much that the torrent of tears were erasing the flags on his cheek. He couldn't wow. speak for, for, for sobbing in joy. And the current king, then the prince came in and the, the queen came in. And apart from Philippe Cocu, no other outsiders, that group, Philippe Cocu, who played with some of the Barcelona players and came across from the Dutch dressing room, and me and this Australian cameraman. We were the only other people allowed in that dressing room. And I felt overwhelmed. I felt a little bit embarrassed to be there. And Talk I about exclusive access. It, it is, it, it was, but I've, and I, I, I recognise this as a bit of a weakness and any hard-bitten journalist or producer will be laughing at me right now. But I felt I'm kind of um, intruding on the greatest moment of their lives. They've worked for this. I've worked hard to be here too, but I, I, wasn't, I haven't really done anything other than my job. Maybe they felt the same of themselves. So I hugged the wall a little bit while my cameraman got around and I made sure that he was being careful and that I explained to anybody what was going on. Until Ped... Uh, Pedro, um, who'd started the final, came up to me with a bottle of the sponsor's beer in his hand, handed it to me and said, thanks for everything. Oh, wow. Which what kind of made me way. feel much better, but I'm, I'm pretty sure he thought I was Howard Webb. So <laughs> the way to tell that story off is that I, we come out, we're done. We're just then going to wait in a special position for a couple of flash interviews, which I've still got to this day, um, which was just Iker Casillas. Madrid legend and Spain captain, I just say to him, uh, Iker, that moment, you, Arjun Robin, what was it like? 
and he stops and there's just silence. And he goes, it was eternal. The relationship within those, within the team was an extremely important factor, but we know that another important factor as well, um, the, the mind of Pep Guardiola, when he was at Barcelona, the, 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 and previous to him, and he mentions it himself, we've all seen interviews and his words, where he speaks about the, the great man, Johan Cruyff. And I really, really want to speak to you about this man, Greg, because I know it's somebody you have huge respect for and you've had some, um, some brilliant stories with as well. So if I could steer you in that direction, for you to tell me a little bit about this man's influence on, on Spanish football. I think it's been um, like a Gulf Stream in the ocean, a central, undeniable flooding of uh, warmth and creativity and a reason that things blossom and bloom. So, in theory, he's a Barcelona legend. That's the place he played and then worked as a coach and then worked as a, as a guru because in his latter, um, his latter state, he was only really advising Joan Laporta and Pep Guardiola. But what he asked his, how he asked his, particularly his dream team to play was revolutionary. And it, it, it was not only with a style and a flair, and if you ask any of the players in his dream team, they say that Pep Guardiola's era was better because John Cruyff's dream team played three at the back regularly, almost always, were very prone to losing the odd game where they were overwhelmed or maybe winning games 5-4 when it should have been 3-0. And Guardiola redefined it and made it, you know, 0.2 version or 0.3 version. But that Cruyff era influenced people's thinking, people's dreams, people's how, how they wanted to touch the ball what they thought the ball was for. But there was also a geometry, there was a planning about positional football. And not every club adopted that. But to take your point, I mean, I admit I'm waxing lyrical because this, this man is my hero, always has been since 1971, 72, when I was a youngster, we didn't see much. Clearly there was no internet when I was young, there was no, um, you, you, you saw maybe two or three, on television, you maybe saw two or three live games a season, two or three. And as a youngster, I certainly didn't have dreams of going to watch um, Ajax or eventually Feyenoord. You play for the Washington Diplomats. But I did see him on television winning the European Cup three times in a row for Ajax. And I was stunned. I'd never seen anything like it. It was like watching... I'm so old that I use references like Rudolf Nureyev, the, the, the most famous ballet dancer of all time. Genuinely, that's what I thought I was watching on the pitch. And then as a kid, I was like, I don't recognise this. I go to watch Aberdeen, they're my team, I'm a football addict, but I don't recognise what I'm seeing. This is something undefinable. I need to, I had a thirst then to learn about it. And, and years later, I met him, I interviewed him, um, I watched his teams, I've interviewed his son, I've interviewed players that worked for him. There are various different tales. He, he wasn't uh, perfect in any manner, but he was a genius, definitely a genius. And you asked for La Liga and for a Spanish national team, Cruyff, people decided that there was a way to win games, that there was a way to play, that there was a philosophy, that there was something that would could be a Bible, that could be central. What What is, the, what is having the ball for? What is acceptable risk-taking? 
what is a, is attack the best form of defence? What what is your brain? What is a football brain for? How do you apply it? What are your objectives? And do you want to entertain? These things I think were were heavily heavily influenced by John Cruyff's arrival at, at the camp now, and not everybody listening will remember that the product of La Liga when they went to the national team was called the Furia Roja. They were they were a very English or Basque style national team. Lump it long, knock it down, try and knock it in the goals. Play, you know, shoulder, robust elbow charges. Very English brand of football. That changed altogether. And footballers that came through, including Victor Valdez and Carlos Puyol and Xavi and Iniesta, were either recruited by Football Club Barcelona under Cruyff's regime when he was at the very top, or um, were recruited by people that were still at the club once he left, but that he'd appointed. And I think that Madrid, um, as the other behemoth of, of, maybe the behemoth of Spanish football, they've always had a slightly different idea about how to build, how to recruit, because even under Santiago Bernabeu, uh, Gento and, and Puskas and Di Stefano and Del Sol, those were the original Galacticos. So, even though there were differences in philosophy, I think almost all top-level Spanish football began to believe over, you know, Cruyff came to, as a coach, came to Spanish football in 1988. From that point onwards, there was a gulf stream of whether we buy into it or we don't buy into it from other clubs, other academies, other sporting directors, other kids just watching on TV. It's an influence. It influences me and my thinking. And it, and it came to fruition. It was a harvest that came to fruition. But it, it like good harvest, like good apple trees, it keeps it keeps coming to, to bloom, to harvest, every couple of years. I don't think, Luke, La Liga and its academies have changed very much from the idea of we want to have players who dominate the ball, who are technically brilliant, who are strategically adept, who can change formations and tactics within a game on instruction, and play as if nothing's happened. That's not true of all the other leagues. It isn't. Absolutely. La Liga Absolutely. has... It's one of the things that makes La Liga special, right? It's one of the things that really sets it apart to compare to other leagues. I, I think that when other clubs come in and try to buy our talents, I'm always sorry that they're leaving from our entertainment value, but I'm always certain that there will just be this... It's not an automatic, it's not a God-given right... But La Liga's clubs invest ideas. Uh, and there's a philosophy. And we, we also train our coaches really well so that the younger players coming through consistently are technically able. They're encouraged to get an education out with football. So many of the, the elite players have studied outside football and continue to do so while they're elite footballers. That changes your mind. That changes your ability to assimilate really interesting and difficult uh, tactical concepts. We, we have, La Liga has, the conglomeration of the tactically brightest, technically most able footballers anywhere in the world, year in, year out, over your and my working careers. Graham, I mean, we've barely scratched the surface with, with the, the depths of your, your knowledge about the beautiful game and in particular Spanish football here. Um, so I'm hoping you'll be willing to come back and see us another time. Um, but thank you 
so much for your time, uh, especially with with COVID here as well. I mean, I, I, I'm really, really appreciative of your time and utterly fascinated again by, by what you've given us. Uh, look, my pleasure. Um, I adore uh, La Liga and it's been a great way to spend the last quarter of a century. So to be able to speak about it with you was nothing other than a pleasure and a privilege. And I hope people have been entertained, not bored, but every single word of what I said was true and came from the heart. Wow, what can we even say about that interview with Graham? What crazy stories he had for us. Do you guys understand why we nearly missed that train? There's plenty more to come though. From whichever part of the world you are listening, please follow or subscribe on the platform you're using and most importantly, leave a rating.